Hello and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. I release new episodes every second Monday. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to remain updated. If you want to reach me, you can do that on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook, and you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. I plan to keep the show free to listen to and download, but if you do want to support me and help out with covering costs of production and hosting, you can make monthly or one-off donations at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment. There is a link to that at soundofthemoment.com, of course. Thank you so much to those of you who are already supporting me in that way. This episode is number 41 for the 27th of May, 2019. Keyboardist and bandleader Felix Back is my guest. His band Sonswaga have just released their second album called Dark Magic. And I'll begin by playing a track from that. This one is called Neath. Thank you. 
Keyboardist, composer, band leader, Felix Back is my guest today on the show. Felix, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit. I can't be sure that everybody's going to be familiar with you, so uh, tell people a bit about who you are, what you do, where you're from, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, like Pat said, I'm a piano player, mostly keyboard player nowadays, Mm -hmm. and uh, composer. I write the music for my own uh, nine-piece band called Sonswaga, a funk fusion band. And... uh, I've been living in Amsterdam for the last six or seven years. I just finished my bachelor at the conservatory Mm -hmm. last summer. And uh, before I did the bachelor, I did one year of preparatory here also. Because I actually came here straight after, when I was 18, so straight after, uh, I call it music school, but in Finland when you're done with... uh, like your primary education, you do like around three years of profession school or gymnasium. So okay. I guess it kind of is the same as in Holland. But uh, And I chose to do um, profession school for music. So And after that, I came straight to Amsterdam. And uh, at that point, when I was 18, my level was not quite enough. So uh, they put me in the preparatory year, which uh, I actually heard it's not so common for foreign students to do a preparatory year. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that like a lot of Dutch students go through somehow because it's like you people tend to be familiar with who you are if you're a Dutch kid who wants to go to the mm-hmm. school here, but indeed it's kind of a it's a pretty unusual thing. I don't know that I know many people that that yeah. have come from abroad and that get told, okay, well we'll keep we'll have you here for a year before we start the full program. Yeah, so, and yeah. I, I can imagine it's quite in, inconvenient also because with funding and stuff, like for example, I couldn't get study finance for, like the preparatory study wasn't enough to get finance from Finland. Oh, yeah. But luckily I, I could still do it. And actually for me, it was maybe my uh, most progressive year so far <laughs> in, in like just coming to, I guess it had a lot to do with also changing environment and coming to Amsterdam and like in my hometown there's, there is some jazz, but most of the music students are not really into jazz. So for me, coming to a place where everybody <laughs> was about jazz, you know, that I guess that had a big impact also. Yeah. But so why did you choose to, to first of all, why did you choose to come to Amsterdam, I suppose? And also, like, why why jazz? If, if like, there wasn't a lot of jazz where you came from, what was the uh, impulse there? I suppose a lot of people say, well, it's because I didn't want to play classical music. But, mm-hmm. uh, like, yeah, what... Well, I'm going to have to also say that because I didn't want to play classical, <laughs> but I actually did play classical at first. Uh, I started classical piano when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. And it was not really my choice in a way. Like I didn't think much of it. Like my parents just thought he should play piano. or mm-hmm. And I just went to the lessons and uh, I kind of liked it, but I wasn't crazy about it. And then uh, I continued with that um, I was in like a local conservatory, but for kids uh, until I uh, was around 12 years old when I started to feel like classical, it became kind of a drag. Like uh, once in a while we had these student teacher parent evenings, you know, where you have to play in front of all of the parents. And mm-hmm. I remember just having like such anxiety having to go up on stage and play you know like I remember almost having this out of body experience when I walked up to the (laughs) piano you know and I just felt like this classical was not for me and so I started looking for something uh, else what I wanted to do and Mm -hmm. um, I remember at the time I kind of described what I wanted to do as piano rock that was like my way of (laughs) okay contextualizing it but then later I realized that that was actually fusion or jazz fusion mm-hmm. and uh, I mean there's no school for fusion of what I know so jazz was the thing to study for me yeah. and uh, so then I did what I talked about in the beginning the profession music school which was mm-hmm. ma- way more pop oriented actually than yeah. jazz but we had some jazz mm-hmm. there and actually there is surprisingly much jazz in my hometown uh, Mm. for such a small place. It's like 25,000 people, but we have a a very strong jazz um, uh, kind of, uh, how do you call it? Like a company or or like an organization actually. And uh, they organize a jazz festival every year Mm -hmm. and uh, they have a jam session every Thursday, which is quite strange for a 
place of 25,000 yeah. people. So what is the place? Sorry, I don't think uh, It's called it. Pietarsari or, okay. or Jakobstad in, in Swedish. Yeah. It's actually okay. a 75% Swedish speaking city in Finland. Okay, so. yeah. Yeah, it's int- I mean, I my feeling is that Finland is like there is beginning to be quite a few kind of cool things happening, especially like a few cool festivals I played I played a festival last year, I think. Um, and was really impressed with like the the stuff that was happening there. Do you remember what um, it was called? Was it Body Jazz? Uh, or Flow Festival maybe? I don't know. It was in Helsinki um, or outside of Helsinki, but... Yeah. Um, anyway, um, the the reason I, I bring this up is, I mean, just so how, like, do you have a, a, a sense of the scene there? Like, is it, obviously you've been here for years now, but like how attached are you to the scene that's there? And and is the, do you have a sense that there's a scene and that there's things happening there? Is there opportunities and stuff? In, yeah, in th- there definitely is a jazz scene in Finland. And, but since I'm Finnish Swedish, uh, which is kind of in a way a little bit a separate culture still mm-hmm. in Finland, I was never really connected to the Finnish jazz scene mm-hmm. but uh, also it's kind of like a, not a closed scene but it's it's like very little amount of people that can make it you know yeah and you have something called a yatslito which is like a jazz organization uh, like nationwide jazz organization and they pick four i think bands every mm-hmm. year that they promote and okay. th- those are basically the bands that really can do the tours and and yeah you know and uh, yeah, so yeah. It, in a sense, it's a kind of like you you really have to be part of that scene, as I can imagine it is like in many European countries. Like, yeah, probably. Um, but what I, I what I see though with Finnish jazz is that it's not very traditional. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a lot of free jazz going on and a bit of fusion also, and th- th- I find that kind of interesting. That it's it's it, yeah, it's not very traditional bebop. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't suppose there was a, there was much of a connect. Like you can see, the places where there is a traditional scene usually have a connection to like American guys coming over in yeah. the fifties and sixties. Like if you look at the French scene or the Italian scene or the you know the UK scene, even the scene here or Belgium, like it's a lot of like okay, well, there's these three or four like like bebop superstar guys that came over. And therefore, like the scene kind of emerged out of that. Whereas I don't suppose that's necessarily something that happened so much there. Maybe I'm completely wrong. No, I don't think um, that happens so much in Finland. No. Yeah, which which gives a which gives an interesting flavor to the music. I yeah, suppose. and I, I think like jazz in Finland, it's more improvised music than mm-hmm. actually jazz. Like um, I think some of the. I mean, it's it's a bit the same as you know, like the ECM label. A lot of it is is coming more from classical music and, mm-hmm. and, and more modern uh, modern classical music mixed yeah, with yeah. improvisation. Basically, I think that's stronger in in Finland. Yeah, um, I suppose maybe the logical like n- next step from that point is um, I'm interested in how you got into fusion specifically mm-hmm. um, because. And 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like fusion went through a dip for maybe like twenty years, and it feels like it's coming back strong now, specifically with yeah. like our generation, and I suppose like bands like Snarky Puppy and stuff are kind of bringing certain aspects of that back. Um, but I feel like it kind of went away. It didn't necessarily go away, but I don't feel like there was necessarily like a fresh influx of stuff happening in the fusion scene. And now there is much more of that. Like how, uh, first of all, like do you agree with that statement? And is that part of the reason that you got into it in the first place? Yeah, I definitely agree that it went away for a while. I think especially in like 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think a reason why it's coming back is that it's starting to breed with new music, you know, like I, the fusion of today obviously doesn't sound like 70s fusion. And I think that's because it's, it's taking a lot of influence from hip hop, I would say mainly. Yeah. And uh, with Snarky Poppy also gospel and, and uh, I mean, fusion for me nowadays, it, 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 I kind of want to lump a lot of bands into that category, <laughs> but it's kind of my own definition of it. Like bands like Nowhere, for example. Yeah, I, I can sure. imagine some people would would not agree that Nowhere is fusion, but to me, it's very fusiony. It's like uh, combining drum and bass and and pop, even with mm-hmm. 
And I mean, even a band like Hiatus Coyote is fusion-y to me. Like, so it's that thing of combining jazz with, with um, yeah, other styles. And yeah, no, that makes sense. Although, I mean, I suppose what what I find interesting is, and we'll get to talking specifically about your band, Sanswaga, mm-hmm. in a bit, but um, when I look at, like, the music that you're making, and I look specifically at Sanswaga, and, and be it, like, the aesthetic of the band or the like the music and all that stuff. I feel like there's a much more direct connection to fusion than some of the bands that you just named. Yeah, um, is that fair? Yeah. Like, and and I wonder, like, when or like, where did you get exposed to that? Like, what mm-hmm. what was the the initial like? Hey, I'm aware of like late miles and mm. uh, like weather reports and that kind of stuff. Like, I hear some of that stuff in there. Mm. Um, which indeed, like, you could say, okay, well, I'm inspired by Noah and Highest Coyote and all that stuff, and and that is obviously there as well. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of people are taking that, but aren't actually going back to the real '70s fusion thing. And mm. I feel like you are. So, wh- where did that come from? Well, it. Like I said in the beginning, it was the the at the point when I was kind of sick of playing classical piano and I wanted to find something different. And honestly, it was just a lot of YouTubing, you know. Like <laughs> okay. that was kind of my music platform. Like I, I remember my dad. We used to have these sessions with my dad when we would sit down and he would show me old '80s music videos and stuff. And mm-hmm. and. Uh, one time he found this Finnish guy, uh, Iro Rantala, who had a trio with piano, beatbox, and guitar. Okay. Uh, and uh, that's the moment when I was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Like, that's the first time piano playing really like connected with me. Mm-hmm. And that's not even so fusion-y, but I guess from there I started looking at where does this kind of come from. And I found, I think Chick Corea Electric Band was the first thing I found. I, I remember specifically I was at my uh, uncle's place and uh, he told me to pick out a record from his CD collection and play it. And I just happened, I just knew the name Chick Corea. So I mm-hmm. picked the CD out. I think it was uh, Eye of the Beholder. Yeah. And I put it on and I was like, whoa, this is, <laughs> this is it, you know? And yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of like a, a bit outdated sounding record nowadays. I mean, it's like late 80s, but I just really connected with the groove and the songwriting and the power of it, you know? Yeah. And that that's something for me, which is the main part of Sonswago also, is the power, you know, like the mm-hmm. like heavy hitting grooves and uh, kind of bombastic harmony, you know? And that's something I see a lot in fusion. Yeah. No, definitely. Um I mean, it, it makes complete sense that you would gravitate towards keyboards rather than sticking to like acoustic stuff, uh, given that those aesthetics. But I wonder like when, like did that, was that, uh, I suppose, treating, because I feel like you obviously treat the keyboard and like analog synthesizers and all that kind of stuff and like Fender Rhodes, they're completely different instruments to playing the piano. And, um, and like you said in the very beginning, like that's maybe your main like focus nowadays. Um, was that something that happened early on that you were like, okay, well, actually, I'm kind of more interested in these these electric instruments, or um, and I suppose the 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 side question to that is, how much can you get of that out of a jazz education? Because I don't feel like the the department in Amsterdam doesn't have specifically keyboard players as teachers. Like it's all learn to play like piano and Bill mm. Evans and like pretty kind of. Um, acoustic music so how, mm. like how did you how have you found space to explore that stuff uh well the keyboard thing started when i uh, started the music the professional music school in finland because mm-hmm. it was a pop education basically so i had to play a lot of keyboards and i i probably played way more pop and rock back then than jazz or fusion actually mm-hmm. but that's where the whole keyboard thing started like i almost never played gigs on piano. It was always a Nord stage in mm-hmm. front of me, you know. And then I started to notice that, hey, I like this electric piano sound, you know, like many people still call it electric piano yeah. instead of Rhodes, you know. And then I found mm-hmm. out, okay, it's a Rhodes. And then I eventually even, and I bought a Rhodes from a guy in my hometown. I still have it here in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. So, can we can we like discuss the 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 educational aspect of that? Yeah, because sure. I know that yeah. specifically, like the roads is very unforgiving 
if you try to play it like a piano. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and how like how did you learn to do that? I suppose like. Uh, well, I played a lot of hip hop music on roads. When mm-hmm. I, we, I had a trio in my hometown called Fat Trio. We played. We we tried to recreate hip hop beats. Yeah. And there's not so much actual lead playing in that music for roads. It's more chordal, you know. Yeah. And I remember the day I got it. Uh, we had a gig, and I was like, "Yeah, I can just bring it to the gig," you know. The same day I got it, and that was a big mistake. Yeah. Like I plugged it in the amp, and I started playing it like as if it was a piano, and I was like, "Oh shit, this yeah. it's gonna be a tough gig." And especially what I find with the roads is that on a piano you can just press down the sustain pedal and play uh, notes all over the keyboard, mm-hmm. and it will sound pretty, you know. Yeah. But on a roads, it will just get muddy. Yeah. So you have to be way more aware of, like on piano, you can play uh, lead in your right hand and chords at the same time with sustain pedal down. Yeah. But if you do that on the roads, it will just all mud up, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, and, and I can imagine that also in terms of like specifically voicings and stuff, like you just you cannot play the kinds of crazy, like seven eight note voicings that like you would necessarily on on piano yeah um, especially if there's a lot of uh like clustered notes it can yeah, get tricky. yeah and but so yeah like uh, getting back to the like studying jazz piano what that mm-hmm. gave me in the keyboards I, I mean the keyboard stuff in in amsterdam it's just something i i did on my free time basically yeah i mean uh, i guess there if you want to play keyboard and you and you uh, go to CVA, it's something you have to do in your own time. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the fusion thing because uh, uh, that's not not something you touch very much in the jazz piano education there. So mm-hmm. I mean, except for maybe uh, like from the teachers, maybe Hans Vromans is the most in that direction of the yeah. piano teachers I had. Mm-hmm. But I think the fusion thing is way more bass players and drummers in school, especially electric bass players. I think they yeah. do way more of that. Yeah, so, because so that, in that sense, there is there is a space for it in school because you're going to be playing on bass players. If you're the guy who plays Rhodes or keyboard, then you're going to be playing on electric bass exams. You know? Yeah, sure. So like those kind of things uh, happen to me in in school. And <laughs> but I, but I I always. Uh, I had this feeling in school that if I wanted to do something of my own, I had to do it myself, you know. So I didn't rely on teachers to pave the way for me. Like I, I knew it was something I would have to develop on my own. And uh, a lot of it is just also messing around in logic on my computer, like having the roads at home and recording stuff, making drum loops, you know. And that's how I write music also in Logic, like layering instruments, you know, like yeah. a like a, a virtual band in my computer, basically. Yeah. So I guess that's where I learned it. And like listening to to uh, tunes and trying to copy certain aspects of it into Logic, you know, like sometimes I will even uh, transcribe or like copy a drum beat from a song and like uh, write it out in MIDI, mm-hmm. uh, for example. So yeah, yeah, the fusion thing happened more in my free time, I guess. And that's yeah. also why I started Sonswaga because I was like in second year of school and I was like thinking, I, uh, you know, loved this mu- uh, this fusion music for a long time and I never did anything with it. I just, uh, and I didn't have a band of my own yet in Amsterdam. So I thought maybe it's time to start something. Mm-hmm. And I guess what gave me the confidence to start it also is uh, I just uh, a few months before I got asked to um, join this band Float Monkey. Uh, maybe you know them. Yeah, sure. And um, the drummer Jonathan Zegedi, uh, playing with him, I realized that there's a drummer I can play with who will totally get what I'm going for, you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't really feel that uh, uh, before I met him. Oh, maybe I didn't play with the right person before, but when I started playing with him, I realized, hey, there's people who will get what I'm going for, you know, and that gave me the confidence to start uh, my own thing. Yeah. And uh, then I just looked in school for other people who might fit into that, you know, like... Yeah. yeah. So how... Um, 
I mean, yeah, let, let, let's focus in a bit on, on the band, I suppose. Like, I suppose the most obvious and first thing that comes to mind when discussing Sanswaga is there's nine people on stage. Mm. And, um, and I discuss this with a few of my guests whenever somebody comes in and they write for big band and this kind of stuff. But that feels like kind of somewhat like financially suicidal <laughs> yeah <laughs> to have a nine piece band yeah um and not just financially but also in terms of like trying to organize uh, getting together and how do you like how do you tour how do you do all this stuff so like mm. how like was that just a necessity and you deal with the consequences or did it just kind of grow to okay well these are just the people that we need or and and then i guess the other the other the question is like what like discussing the instrumentation itself like why those specific nine yeah. uh, people and why there's nine instruments um well it kind of started off in the sense that it wasn't so serious and that's why i felt like i could have nine people because mm. uh, it, we we weren't that serious in the beginning like we played the idea originally was actually that it would be more like a kind of bitches brew kind of thing like uh, because at that point when I started the band, I had just been listening a lot to like 70s Miles. And much of it I don't like very much, but some things I like a lot. It's mm-hmm. a bit hit, hit or miss for me with Miles. Yeah, And I wanted to kind of get this big ensemble ma- madness improvisation, a lot of noise, you yeah. know. And um, for me, when I think about the instrumentation, for me, it just makes sense. It's like, it's like a puzzle and the pieces fit. Like, uh, I mean, obviously it's going to have keyboard, guitar, bass, and drums. That's kind of given. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted a horn section and I actually didn't have any experience writing for horn sections uh, when we started. Mm-hmm. And to me, it just made sense to have trumpet, tenor, trombone. And then um, uh, the guys knew a baritone player, Dirk Zanfleet. And he actually even has, coming back to your question, he has a 12-piece band, uh, Gallo Street. Yeah. And they kind of make it work. So I'm (laughs) always, when I feel uh, discouraged, I think about that. (laughs) It is is possible. But sometimes I do think that I kind of, when I started the game, I chose hard mode, you know? Like like my first band, nine people. And we even were on, on our release show two weeks ago, we were with 10 people because we had an extra percussion player. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so for me, the instrumentation just makes sense for the sound I'm going for. I need a percussion player because I need somebody to fill out the the, the spaces in between the drum sounds, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, you know? Yeah. For no, me, sure. percussion just, for me, it adds to the party, you know, more noise, more party. So like playing with two percussionists and a drummer would be even ideal for me because I l- just love that sound of like a wall of rhythm, you mm-hmm. know? No, for sure. And I mean, I feel like that is, that's really part of the identity of a lot of those fusion bands, like, you know, the kind of Eto Morera kind of vibe of like, mm-hmm. there's a dude who's got like a table full of stuff and he's mm-hmm. kind of adding to to the, the thing, whether it's like bongos and shakers and all that kind of stuff. And that feels like it's very, uh, it also kind of partly brings in the fusion side in terms of like world music fusion, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, which which I feel like is an integral part. Like it, it if you were going to lose anybody in the band, I feel like the percussion player is one of the last people that should go because mm. it's kind of, uh, it has that sonic identity, I, mm. I feel. Yeah. Um, so how do you move from being, uh, and I mean, obviously, I, I guess you guys still probably identify as somewhat of a school band in the sense that like, that's kind of where you come from, but how do you make that into the professional thing that you guys are doing today? Yeah. Because that's that's a fairly... Um, I suppose that's a thing that everybody is trying to do, but I feel like m- in most cases that doesn't work out. And in a lot of cases, it's kind of like, there's such a separation between the kind of like, we're a school band and we're out into the real world of real the real scene and trying to get school real gigs and making records and all that kind of stuff. Um, like, was there a step where you were like, okay, now we kind of have to break out of the school and we have to move into like, bigger waters or how did that yeah yeah i guess it's it's really difficult because especially here in amsterdam where so many musicians uh, i guess competing is a bit of a negative word but i mean there's a lot of musicians and there's only space for so many 
to really become professional, I guess. Mm-hmm. And for me with Sonswaga, it was a matter of it slowly becoming more and more serious and sl- me slowly learning from mistakes, you know? Yeah. So I think what it really takes is uh, being, uh, uh, sticking with it, you know? Like even if it goes slow, you know, don't give up on it. That's, I think it, it sounds a <laughs> bit corny, but that's really the main thing. Like, um, it's not going to happen overnight and the growth has to be really slow sometimes. And, and I would say the other thing is to, yeah, what I said, learn from your mistakes. Like, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about what it means to lead a band and like how you motivate people and like, you know, like band leader, like, uh, procedure, you know, like bringing Mm -hmm. sheets that are good, you know, like, and I think that's really important also, especially as a band leader, just like developing these band leader skills. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're dealing with nine people, then things need to be organized. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, for example, there was one case uh, last summer, we played a gig with uh, a couple of subs. We were actually only two people from the original band. Oh, wow. Okay. And the rest were subs. <laughs> And um, we had one rehearsal or two rehearsals maybe. And um, I was kind of uh, like the sheets that I gave them were the sheets that we rehearsed with before we made the album. Mm-hmm. And the sheets were out of date and like there was bars missing and yeah. some stuff wasn't written out because we came up with it later or whatever. Yeah. And I kind of expected that the subs would put more emphasis on listening to the album than reading the sheets, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I, I thought they would listen so that they would know, yeah, okay, here's where I have to come in. Yeah. And I was so wrong about that. Oh, yeah, like, for the, sure. Like, the first rehearsal <laughs> was a mess, and it was totally my fault. And, yeah. like, I went home, and I just spent the whole evening updating all the sheets, making sure all the bar lines were correct and whatever. And that's... that was So I'm still learning lessons. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's... Yeah, being a good band leader, that's important, <laughs> especially with nine people, yeah. No, for sure. And uh, I mean, also having respect for the band members. I mean, they have other bands and they have other, um, you know, obligations and they, they have to pay their rent and stuff. And, and mm-hmm. that's something you have to have respect for, like how much time can you ask from people, you know? Yeah. And that's especially with Son Swagger, we we spend the most time... Uh, rehearsing with the rhythm section actually bass, drums, guitar and keys that's kind of the core of the band and like always with new tunes we are the first guys to check it out always and Mm -hmm. because I want that when the horns come in the tune like we have to know the tune already because that just eases up the rehearsal time a lot yeah of course yeah, uh, because uh, a lot of the time, a lot of the difficulty of the songs lays in the rhythm or the groove. So we need to have that down before other people come in. You know. Yeah. 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 And I get, I, yeah. You can't have nine people searching all at the same time. Yeah. That, that is a waste of everybody's time. And and yeah, and that's a bit what I said. Like having respect for people's time yeah. also. And uh, for sure. I, so talking about. Band leader skills. Um, I, I there's a couple of, of aspects that that I'd like to 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 talk about. Which is, first of all, um, with a band like this, what are like the opportunities in terms of venues, and what is the ideal venue for you guys to perform in? Because it seems to me like the music that you guys are making, as as much as we all love playing at the Bim House. Um, and I'm sure that it would work at the BIM House. Maybe the BIM House is not the ideal place mm. to play this music. We did play there um, once. No, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't, like I say, I don't question that it works. Yeah. And I don't question that you want to play there. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. But I, I, I mean, I see on your tour list that you tend to play in, in other types of venues. And I wonder where that, um, where that comes in and how do you, like, how do you figure out how to reach those places? Because I feel like there is a, um, there's kind of like a path that is defined for how a young jazz musician is supposed to go about making their career. Mm-hmm. And there is venues that you're supposed to be going and playing in. There's like, this is the first venue you contact. And this is the second one. And this is where you go. And this is like the ideal tour list and stuff. And 
I feel like there's more and more people that are kind of breaking out of that and looking at other opportunities and different kinds of like audiences and different kinds of places to play. So like how much of that is a conscious effort on your part to be like, hey, I'd prefer to play Paradiso than I would play Bim House. Right. Um, and what what is the audience you're trying to reach and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think in a sense, fusion is always a bit in a tough spot because um, you're too loud for a lot of jazz venues and you're not... <laughs> Uh, you're not commercial enough for many venues, you know. So you yeah. kind of have to find that sweet spot in between. And I get what works best are like a bit larger clubs and festivals. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we've also had experiences where we played at festivals, uh, like an afternoon slot, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like this is not the place for my music, you know. Yeah. Like, like the I, I, I. I know that this is not what the audience came here for, you yeah. know, and and that's something I'm conscious of also. Like I I have a always this feeling of that I want to respect the audience also, you know. Like we've had moments when we played, you know, Blyberg, you know, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the beach, yeah, like beach in, festival, in, in, uh, yeah, and <laughs> we we played at the cafe there outside. They had this Afrobeat uh, festival thing. Yeah. And our music was just way too loud for, for the people who were sitting and eating and stuff. Yeah. And like a dude even came up to me like while we were playing and he was like showing me like we have to cut it out, you know. <laughs> and that that makes me feel really bad. Like yeah. I, then I feel like I'm disrespecting people. I mean, I guess that's a bit, um, uh, I guess my insecurity also because but I'm to be honest I find that refreshing because I'm yeah. very used to people saying no kind of fuck you uh, I'm going to play my music now yeah. and and deal with it kind of and the idea that you look at the audience and you think oh, wait none of these people want this right now yeah um, I mean obviously it's a depressing fact and it's a thing that I think we all go through which, mm. <laughs> but um, but so how do you like what is the ideal venue do you have you figured that out uh, well I mean, like places like Paradiso is the ideal venue. And like with people who come there uh, because they know us, you know, or Mm -hmm. people who come there because they know they like this kind of music, which is a luxury, of course. I mean, we're not there yet when we have a big following in in that Mm -hmm. sense, you know. But for example, our release show two weeks ago was at um, Tolheistein. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the audience was like, of obviously our friends and stuff, but also a lot of the supersonic jazz uh, crowd. Yeah. Uh, because our album was released on supersonic jazz, which mm-hmm. is also, cl- they're closely tied with Party, so also. Yeah. And um, they're, like they're, the fact that the supersonic crowd came there was a perfect match because I also went to their jazz festival and it's mainly fusion mm-hmm. acts or like progressive yeah. Uh, uh, jazz stuff and I think that's what made that evening so good is that all the people who were there are into that kind of music yeah sure and I, I do really think that there is a big audience for music like this especially in America I think mm-hmm. and, and London also uh, but I mean it's a niche but I think it's growing so I think there's hope for it I mean the fact that Snarky Puppy uh, made it so big you know is yeah is, is is for me uh, evidence that it can work. Yeah. Even though Snarky Puppy, it's in America and that's different. Like the opportunities are of course way bigger there. You yeah. know? But to be fair, like if you look at uh, somebody like Michael League, he has, uh, he is the most workaholic person that I'm aware of. <laughs> like yeah. he's, he like will not sleep and will not stop. And yeah. it took a long time. I mean, I remember uh, back, I was studying in Brussels like a d- decade ago and um, Snarky were going to come touring in Europe and they didn't know what to do on one day. And it was like friends of mine were trying to set up a gig for them and they played in this kind of bar thing, you know. Mm. And, and this was before people were really aware of who they were, but they were just doing it. Because like, okay, we just want to, do this, you know, and they kept going. And like you say, the perseverance is kind of what pays off. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And now each of them gets to have their side project that also does stuff. And so mm. in the long run, it, it works. And indeed, I feel like they are kind of paving uh, the path for that idea of alternative venue, alternative audience, um, which, I mean, you see it, 
they kind of do the high risk, high reward stuff of literally renting out a venue and saying, hey, we're going to come and play in this theater and we know that people are going to come. So we're kind of fine. And I suppose that's that's a difficult step to reach. Mm. But um, but it, they are there are people doing it, I guess, is, is the point. So um, tell me specifically about the album. So the, the, you, um, it's the second album that you guys are releasing. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a bit about the process of recording it and yeah. gathering material and all that kind of stuff. So the the process of recording was actually, or the whole process actually, was pretty much uh, the same as the first album, which is that we um, uh, we go into the basement of uh, our former uh, percussion player Gino. Uh, mm-hmm. He's too he's busy with other bands uh, at the moment, so we have another conga player now. Yeah. But he still played on the album, and uh, his father has an analog studio in his basement. It's okay. quite small. Yeah, uh, like there's a little control room and like a room where we can fit the rhythm section. <laughs> and um, I remember it was. Before we recorded the first album, uh, Rinus is his name, Rinus Groeneveld, who owns the studio. And he came to one of our shows. And after the show, he said, like, uh, do you guys want to record a, a demo in my home studio? And he told me it's analog and it's with mag- like magnetic tape, you know, and oh, stuff. Yeah. And I just told him, like, why don't we do an album there, you know? Mm-hmm. And he was fine with it. And yeah. so we're really lucky that we can record there. But I mean, it's it's obviously it's not a it's not a professional studio, mm-hmm. so it has its downsides also. Like the tape machine broke down a few times, and <laughs> and it's also a bit funny for me because I never recorded my own music any other way, you know. Yeah. So like this thing of doing it on tape, uh, it also makes us rehearse better because when you record on tape, the take is the take. Yeah, of you course. Know? Yeah, and. Um, I think on both albums, we did around two or three takes per song. Mm -hmm. And uh, some songs, even just one take. And that was something I was really strict with, that when we go into the studio, we have to be rehearsed enough that we can do it in one or two takes. Yeah, sure. But that's also kind of the magic of tape, is that once it's on the tape, that's that's the take, you know, And, and... and But then actually the second time, now we did horns digitally. Okay. Uh, because uh, we had to do a lot of chopping and like just time-wise, it made sense to do it digital. And uh, we also added a lot of stuff um, uh, digitally. Uh, afterwards, I recorded some synthesizer overdubs and uh, Hammond organ. He yeah. has a Hammond organ in the basement also. Cool. I'm really happy about that. <laughs> and um, yeah. And yeah, the mixing dude and the guy who engineered the sessions is, is uh, Sonny Groenefeld, which is the brother of Gino and he's, he's the drummer of Jungle by Night also. Yeah. So he worked on this album also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, but it, for me, it's just such a luxury to be able to go to that basement because if you go to a commercial studio, then you, you really have to watch the time, you know, and, and stuff like that. And that would just stress me out, you know, like... <laughs> Of course, it's something I, I probably have to do one day, but just the luxury of feeling like you're in somebody's home doing this and you can go upstairs and have a break, you know? And yeah. like the, with the first album recording, they we also had dinner with everybody and it, it just felt like a family thing, you know? Yeah. yeah and that yeah, was yeah. just such a luxury. Mm-hmm. And that kind of outweighs all the... All the issues of it not being a professional studio, you yeah. know. And I mean, sound-wise, it sounds different than stuff which is recorded in a... And that has its ups and downs also. Like, I remember Jonathan, our drummer, telling me that there's the high end of the record, the high frequencies mm-hmm. are a little bit... On tape, it's a little bit uneven somehow. Yeah, that's just the way tape is. Yeah. Like, yeah. But I... For me, it still outweighs the... I have a feeling that like with the new songs I'm writing now also, I'm just curious what they will sound like on tape. Mm -hmm. Because if I record them digitally, I have a feeling that they will sound the way they sound like, you know? But Mm -hmm. with the whole tape thing and the analog mixing desk and everything, I have a feeling that it colors the music in a way that makes it kind of exciting in the sense that you don't know how it's going to turn out, you know? yeah of course there's an unpredictability to some of these like technologies which i find interesting and i feel like it parallels the 
the fact that so much of what we do is improvised, like the idea that there is uncertainty also in the medium itself, um, because like the cold like realities of a DAW of like you know like logic, proposals, whatever it is that you're gonna use is um, is both like super forgiving and super unforgiving in a way because you can correct everything and at the same time. Um, you are left with so many decisions to make that, like, what are you even going to do now? Uh, whereas, indeed, recording to tape, well, that's just what it was, and yeah, and cool. And there's kind of a Zen vibe to that. Yeah, like, okay, exactly. We, that you, uh, the mistakes are there, and that's just how it is. You yeah. Know? Even though we did fix some like mistakes that were like, like if the if that was really the take we wanted, and there's just one little thing, we might have fixed something here and there. Yeah, no, sure. Or digitally later, but uh, yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so the um, I want to talk about the material, and I also want to talk about um, uh, maybe it might kind of a broader general thing, which is I feel like um. From the promo texts that I read, and from the material, and from like the also the visual material that you get from the thing, there is a sense of kind of narrative to what you guys are doing, mm. and I feel like that it, that kind of harkens back to both indeed like the fusion stuff. Um, you look at some of the aesthetics of the the cover art on some of those records, and you think, or or the idea that Wayne Shorter is obsessed with sci-fi or, mm. you know, those kinds of things. Like, I feel, I see kind of a parallel there with what you guys are up to. How much of that is a is a part of your process? How much of it is kind of after the fact? You're like, okay, well, this is kind of how we want to package this. Or, like, do you start off from the moment that you're working in Logic saying, and write this tune, is there like a a narrative purpose to it? Is there like an arc to the yeah. things? It's it's. It- Kind of after the fact, in a sense, that when I write the music, I never think about the whole mythology stuff or or whatever. And Mm -hmm. it's the same, I I never really write music that comes from uh, real, like, experiences or something. Mm -hmm. For me, music is always music and there's there's no meaning to it, you know, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And... um, the whole uh, narrative thing, uh, it's just something that I noticed just went hand in hand with it. It's like two separate things that I could put together, but they don't inform each other in a sense. Okay. But the, for example, the, the all the song names uh, are named after characters in a story that I kind of have in my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of comes from, um, I've been doing this since I was uh, young, but uh, when I close my eyes, when I go to bed, I see images in my head. like, um, And it's kind of like thinking about different characters and it's like this fantasy world, you know? Yeah. And uh, so all the song names come from names of characters. And mm-hmm. so I usually just try to pick a name of a character that will fit with the feeling of the song you okay, know yeah. but the but the 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 story doesn't affect the music and the music doesn't affect the story okay. in that way that's interesting and so what um i guess like that also feeds into both the the visual aspect of it in terms of the artwork and also mm. the visual aspect of it in terms of stage presence yeah. um because i feel like there is a um at least from the from the pictures that I've seen, I haven't seen you guys play live, but mm. I've seen I've I've seen like pictures and stuff of it, and I get the sense that there's almost like a Sunra kind of vibe of like, um, yeah. uh, paying more attention to that stage presence and kind of outlandish stuff mm. uh, than maybe is common. Like, how uh, is that is that an impulse of yours? Is that something you think? Well, we sh- this just makes sense with the material that we're playing. Like, how yeah. does that come about? Uh, for me, it comes from. That I for me, music is entertainment. Like I, I think a lot of people would have other thoughts about it, but for me, music is entertainment. And mm-hmm. for me, when we do a show, I just want to give that little extra for the audience to really make it feel like it's a show, you know. Yeah. And hence the clothing, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I do think it looks great, also. And, no, for sure. And, and a lot of it comes from uh, from uh, my girlfriend Renska Francis, and she uh, did the fashion school in Amsterdam. Okay. So she uh, kind of picked out a lot of the clothes, and yeah. uh, but uh, we uh, there is a direction I would like to take the clothes in 
uh, that would make it a little bit more contemporary, but we just don't have the budget for that at the <laughs> moment. And it's it's not highest on the list. Also, you know, there's yeah. like ten other things before that on the on the list. And and uh, but yeah, I really believe in that thing of like give, just giving the extra mile for the audience, you know. And it's something we especially lately been talking a lot about, like how we act on stage and and uh, how the show like for the we tried a new thing with the release song where release show where all the songs fit together so we don't do breaks between songs mm-hmm. and if i talk i talk over the music yeah and that just to me gives much better momentum to the show mm-hmm. and we have all these little moments in between songs that here's like a percussion drum thing you know and here's a bass solo in between two songs and yeah so it's something that we're starting to pay more attention to. And also just how we look on stage. Like, you know, not looking at your instrument all the time, but really yeah. connecting with each other and with the audience also. Mm-hmm. And that's really difficult, especially <laughs> coming from like a jazz background. It feels really unnatural sometimes to really be the show person, you know. But I yeah. but I really believe in it also. Like like and um yeah, it's something I've been thinking about. Maybe uh, I've been thinking about standing up at concerts, like standing up playing keyboard. Yeah, it might look a bit corny, also, but <laughs> it, it would just make me more, give me a better presence on stage. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes it's something that I think. Um, I think specifically, like American musicians tend to have more of an understanding of that. The idea of like music as entertainment, and the idea mm. of. Um, uh, yeah, making sure that the audience has a good time and what we're doing is not all that serious and we're not supposed to be like, uh, obviously what we are doing is art and in some cases is high art and is like mm. of great value in all those kind of deep ways. But also, you know, you have to kind of make sure that there's fun that translates and that indeed nobody wants to look at nine dudes staring at their feet for mm. an hour. Yeah. Um, and when I call it entertainment, I also don't mean to cheapen it, you know, but it's more mm-hmm. from what I mean with entertainment is that I make the music to make myself and other people feel good. You yeah. know, uh, that's, I mean, I want our music to be fun and danceable, but I mean, there's still the more serious aspect to it. I mean, it can be very complex sometimes. No, sure, and that's also like the I I often uh, bring up the whole like spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down thing, you know, which <laughs> right, is right. the idea that especially like in cases like this where you're also maybe trying to reach a different audience than the typical like BIM house going people, yeah. you know, you've got to have a sense of you know we're going to give you something that will make this relatable and fun. Yeah. And yeah, and then at the same time you're listening to complicated odd rhythms and yeah. and, and and like dense arrangements on that yeah, kind of it's, stuff. It's something I pay a lot of attention to when I write songs is always trying to have one anchoring element, like something that people can can grab a hold to, you know? Yeah. Like one of the new, the Nahuel, a song on the, on the new album has this very simple beat. It's just like boom, ka, boom, boom, ka. Boom, ka, boom, boom, ka. That's the, yeah. that's the drum beat and that's mm-hmm. what the bass player plays. That's what I play. But then the horns play like an octatonic uh, kind of um, Arabic si- sounding thing on top of it. Yeah, And people can still dance to it because of that drum beat. And I mean, that's a very easy way to make songs relatable. Yeah. yeah. Also, like it, whenever we have a song in 7-8 or something, I like to have somebody still playing the big... Uh, the like the quarters over yeah. it, yeah, yeah, sure. And then peop, suddenly people can dance to it because you're giving them the quarters, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so like those kind of things, I think about a lot. Like, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so I uh, I just realized I don't think we even said it yet, but the album is called Black Magic, Dark Magic, uh, Dark Magic, Dark Magic. Yeah. Where did I read Black Magic? <laughs> I don't know. Did I just make that up? I guess <laughs> I made it up. Dark Magic. Um, and uh, yeah, is is there any other stuff uh, that you want to uh, discuss? Is there any stuff that you're up to as a sideman? Um, any like things we can expect from Sonswaga in the future? Uh, any stuff you want to mention? Uh, well, we'll be playing at um, North Sea Jazz uh, in the summer. Really happy about that. Yeah, and uh, we also um, have some more 
stuff coming up with Supersonic Jazz. Uh, we're really happy to be working with them. It's a really good match yeah. for us, uh, Amsterdam uh, label. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there's some stuff coming up in the fall, like before the uh, before the festival. They have this, I think it's in uh, November, I think. Mm-hmm. They always have this Supersonic Jazz Festival. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah, would yeah. highly recommend that for anyone in Amsterdam who is into uh, fusion or just jazz in general and yeah. we we have some uh, new stuff coming out with them before the festival cool and, uh, yeah there will be links to all of that stuff obviously um on the website so people can go and check that out hopefully um i always like to end by asking my guests to recommend something i mean you obviously just recommended that festival but maybe there's another thing mm-hmm. that you have that you found particularly inspiring or something that you think people should give some attention to uh, anything that comes to mind yeah uh, well, something uh, which is uh, quite dear to me is the books of Terry Pratchett. Oh, uh, yeah, the the British <laughs> uh, author. It's it's like it's fantasy, but it's kind of like a counter reaction to fantasy. Like in interviews, he often tells the story that um, like the people who were inspired by people who were inspired by Tolkien, like several generations down, yeah. that it, that the kind of inbreeding of fantasy was getting ridiculous mm-hmm. like just repeating the same tropes and and stuff and he started this disc world series yeah, as a way to counter act that kind of so it's fantasy but it has a lot of it's kind of like fantasy set in a modern society like it's not modern but but like some of our ideas like having a job and yeah and, and it stuff always like that. it yeah. always like each book tends to reflect on Kind of very specific parodying of various aspects of things. That, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, uh, big fan. I've uh, I've I've read them all myself. Um, all of them. I, uh, yeah. Oh wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I'd say like to add to that uh, for people that aren't aware of of Terry Pratchett. Um, he obviously passed away. Uh, what like a year or two ago yeah, now? Yeah, something. something um, like that. And he was uh, he was very sick. He had Alzheimer's and all that stuff. And he was a, a very strong advocate for um, uh, euthanasia. And mm. there is a there is a documentary out there about that, discussing the idea of. Um, well, this is a bit of a downer, I suppose. But yeah, I guess, uh, yeah. it, it is it is quite quite important, and it was really important to him. I think the mm. the, the idea that we embrace that uh, people should be able to go um, with dignity, and it's something that is possible in this country, and that is not possible in other yeah. places. I mean, um, it's something you see in the disc world, even like with the character of death, yeah. uh, which is very present in a lot of the books, and he's, and I think that's. Coming from the same place, yeah, of. for sure. And and to be clear, they are hilarious. And uh, yeah, even definitely. even if it's dealing with kind of heavy topics, um, I think he's uh, yeah, he was quite a treasure. So uh, nice, nice recommendation, man. Hmm. Um, Felix, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks um, for having me. Hopefully, uh, people will check out all of your stuff and uh, go to salmon.com to find all those links. And you will hear more music from Felix and Sonswaga in just a moment. Many thanks to my fellow members of Keicho for providing the intro and outro music. If you want to support the show, there's a few ways you can do that. First of all, you can and should subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can leave favorable reviews wherever that might be. And you can tell any friends you may have that might like to listen to this kind of show about it. And of course, there is the Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash moment if you want to make donations either one-off or on a monthly basis. And that helps me cover the costs of production and hosting and all that kind of stuff. Thank you so much to those of you who are already donating. You can reach me on Twitter, Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook. And you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. As promised, here is another track from Sonswaga's new album, and this one is called Sage. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment. Mm-hmm.